You are listening to the Sickle to Noise podcast on the Pro Sound Web Podcast Network. Supported by RCF. For over 70 years, RCF's passion for perfection is the driving force behind designing professional audio products and creating unique experiences for venues around the globe. The HDL 50A 4K, the latest large format active three-way line array system, is no exception. Learn more at rcf-usa.com for the latest news and product information. RCF, the sound behind the experience. For the most comfortable headphones that you can wear all day, check out the Audix Pro Studio range starting at just $99. Find out more at audixusa.com. Allen and Heath has asked us to read this. If the speed of sound is 346 meters per second in air, 540 meters per second in neon, and 1,533 meters per second in seawater, can I get through this episode faster while listening to a neon sign while surfing? I wish I could break free Back to where I'm supposed to be I wish I could break free Back to where I'm supposed to be Hey everybody, uh, so welcome to the Signal to Noise podcast. Uh, today I'm joined by Chris Leonard, Kyle Turnside, and Michael the Handsome as it is hey. labeled. Yeah, <laughs> so handsome. It it broke his camera, and we can't see him. I mean, it's. But you know, you know the truth. You know that I am handsome. You don't even need to see it. We, we I, know I that you are on hotel Wi Fi. I got to see him for a minute, so that'll get me through the hour. Good <laughs> oh my goodness, that's awesome. Um, I think we really have like one housekeeping, and that would be CFX is coming up in Dallas, um, October 25-26. Michael, Kyle, and I will be there. Um, and so if you are remotely close to Dallas, let's come hang out, maybe eat some tacos, maybe do a live podcast, come listen to a loudspeaker demo that we're going to do with seven different manufacturers. And um, But without we'll, Sam. Wah, wah, without wah. Sam, unfortunately. No. I'll boys miss you night, all. Boys night. Boys night. <laughs> um, Careful, guys. Let, you're going to be left unsupervised. Let, let's mention that this is a church sound thing. It's uh, for worship leaders and worship and stuff like that. Um, but everyone is invited. And uh, yes. last time we were there, it was 110. It was it was glorious. It was 110 degrees. It was nasty. It was nasty. Yeah, it we was also September. So this this yeah this is October. So this will hopefully be a little bit cooler. Yeah, we did a grassy knoll. We we did the museum the day after. That was interesting and uh, to see all of all of that. So we won't I get into any of those cons- too. Conspir- conspiracy theories. So are you flying this time, Kyle? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just gonna show up. I'm just gonna be like, hey, like last I mean, time. Hey, at, I'm not gonna try to like pressure you, but you should probably decide soon if you want a plane ticket. You know, you should get your plane probably, ticket, buddy. That's, that's probably a good idea. <laughs> I just got. I just oh. got home. I'm I'm reeling in that 3D decompression thing that we've talked about mm. several times. So, I just got home, and I've been to. I, I turned down Pearl Jam. I sent my lady and her friend to Pearl Jam because I had Pearl Jam tickets and I could not do a concert the night I got home. And then last night I went to another show to see a friend and it was glorious. I mean, except for the band part. It, it seemed like it was great. <laughs> Those pesky bands, they just keep getting in the way, don't they? I know, right? They can't even yeah. talk or We're hold trying to talk and they're playing music. It's like, what is this? 
I mean, it was $22 beer night at the amphitheater. I mean, who could pass that up? <laughs> That's every night, Kyle. Wow. It is. Hell of a sale. I know. It will. Why do they It's just gouging. I saw a uh, $20 box of nachos. Like, eat before you come. Let me just go ahead and get wasted in the parking lot, kids, because it's expensive once you get in there. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, Chris, why don't you intro our yes. guests? Yes. Uh, so, you know, I've been excited for this conversation for a while, uh, and I purposely kind of held off, actually, on on getting um, this person on here for a couple reasons. One, um, so uh, most of you probably have heard of Tana Douglas at this point. She uh, released a book called Loud, uh, A Rock History Time Capsule and a Journey of Self-Discovery All at Once. Um, this is, uh, you know, Tana is the, uh, the world's first female roadie. Um, coming from Australia. And so she wrote a book, uh, and it's been slowly releasing around the world. Uh, and as of this week of, of recording, it's officially released in the U.S. So when I saw Tana out at, at NAM, I was like, hey, we need to get you on. And I was like, you know what, let's, let's, let's line this up with when this comes out in the U.S. because I think that'll be kind of cool. Plus, I wanted to get a hard copy in my hands, which I'm literally holding right now, which is awesome. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, uh, we want to welcome you, Tana. And real quick, I want to preface, I, w- I want to make sure that, that, you know, people have possibly heard a lot of your stories at this point. A lot of people have, have covered you uh, as they should. Um, I hope we can maybe go some different directions. We'll hit maybe some juicy stories because that's always fun to tell. Uh, but I want to cover a couple different directions. But anyway, welcome, Tana. I appreciate you hanging out with us. Yay. Well, <laughs> well thank you. I, I'm actually honored because I've been looking forward to this. You know, like like you say, I've done a few other um industry type things you know and it's and it's been great fun and i'm happy to talk about anything (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. you know it's it's nice for me to mix it up too you know because you get you do get tired of saying the same things and and i I mean i just did like a press junket like radios back to back to back to back you know because a book came out on the 20th and a lot of them asked the same questions but not that they know, but I went out of my way to make different answers for them. You right. know what I mean? Just right. for my sake. You know? Right. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to drop a link, actually. So Daniel Liston Keller did an interview with you for the Sound Girls Virtual Conference. I'll drop a link to that. I think it's a great um, – I, I love the way he digs into stories. And uh, so I encourage people to maybe check that out. And that 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 – version of the conversation with you probably dig more into the book maybe than we will or more, more your story um but what's for those who don't know um uh what's what's the short synopsis of of how you got into this and maybe some of the acts you worked with um um early on okay yeah so like a lot of us i had a pretty shitty childhood so i ran away from home at a very young age um 15 and um I went to a festival and just never came home. And that's when I decided that music was something I was interested in. And um, after putting out some feelers and, and figuring it out, I, I ended up with a job doing Backline and it, it evolved from there. You know, within a short amount of time, I was working for a band called ACDC. Small band. I've heard it. I <laughs> well, think I've heard it. I mean, songs. they were a very, very young band at the time and we all lived in a house together. So that was fun. And, you know, after a while, though, I decided if I'm going to do this as my life career, I need to learn more, you know. So I went from backline to front of house sound. I dipped my toes in there for a little while, which was front of house sound for ACDC and monitors from front of house, 
not a good thing. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they were they were fine with it, and I was fine with it. But you know, that's where the equipment was in those days. You know what I mean? That's that was the choice. So you know, I thought about it, and I thought, you know, how am I going to level this playing field? Being a female coming in and working with all these people who have been doing it at least 10, 15 years longer than I am. I'm just starting, you know. And lighting was just really starting. So it's like, you know what? I'm going to go and do that because that's leveled the playing field straight away. You know what I mean? So we'll see where that goes, you know. So, and, and that's what happened. I started working for a major promoter who had a sound and light system. It was a Clare Brothers system that got left down in Australia and um, by blood, sweat and tears, actually. And um, we built a uh, <clears throat> not-too-exotic lighting system <laughs> to go with it. <laughs> but that was good because, you know, that starts me doing power and all sorts of stuff, you know. So, so it was a really good learning curve and I was working with the best crews in Australia, you know, and we were first people to get all the news coming in for all the international bands because that's who the promoter did. He was a major promoter. So, you know, I did that for a while as well and then I just got itchy feet and I had to see the rest of the world because I'd been seeing all these international bands coming through and it was like, I need to go check this out. So, you know, I went to the UK, spent, you know, ten, eight years there, then got transferred by a company called Tasco, who mm-hmm. um, got eventually got, I guess, evolved into Claire, I think, absorbed them at some point. But um, so I, I was with them for a while and got transferred to the States, stayed with them. You know, went and worked in France, back to Australia, back here, all over the place, and ended up having my own own um, logistics company. So doing, taking care of all the freight shipping around the world and um, carnets and all all that sort of good stuff. So that's in um, what under three minutes. <laughs> no, that's that's. I mean, you probably had to, had to give that ele- elevator uh, elevator pitch quite uh, many times. So t- how about t- how about um, from a story perspective? Take us back to you describing your book. Um, uh, the first show you went to, I believe, is a whiskey a go go, and you realized what people were doing, uh, and you had a you you discovered an early mentor uh, at that at that moment at that show. Absolutely, I'd, I'd just come out of the rainforest. I'd, I'd been at that hippie festival, you know. Then I then I tried being a hippie for a while. Definitely was not for me. I I had them all working jobs and stuff within a couple of months. They hated me. <laughs> well, not really, Good. but you know, it was like we love it to death. But she keeps making us work and stuff. This is way uncool. <laughs> so we I took to, off. <laughs> we need to send you to Austin, Texas. <laughs> well, 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 they sent me to Sydney in Australia first, and it was the whiskey was like a, a, a you know a knockoff of the whiskey over here in Los Angeles, and it was still R and R when all the you know American soldiers were coming through. So it was an R and B band. Um, I, I don't know for the love of me. People go, "What's the first concert you saw?" Well, this was it. But the thing is that I got introduced to this tour manager, and his name was Wayne Swampy Jarvis. So Swampy says. You know, oh, best place to see the band, I'm going to stick you at the front of house sound console, you know. I'm like, okay, cool, you know. So he stands me there, show starts, the guy next to me, there's two guys next to me at the, at the console. One's like twiddling knobs and running around, he's poking the other guy and the other guy's running backwards and forwards from front of house to backstage and then coming back and there's all this going on. And I'm like, what the hell's going on here, you know. And then I'd follow him when he got to the stage and then I'd see him talking to someone else and who was doing something. And then you're seeing guitars get passed up and all this stuff. So I'm like, hey, 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 what the hell's going on here? You know, it was like I found it way more fascinating than what was going on on stage. So I'm watching all this stuff and, you know, in those clubs they do multiple sets. So Swampy comes back to me like during a break, you know, and he goes, so what do you think of the show, you know? And I'm like, 
oh, yeah, you know, it's good, but who are these guys, you know? He's going, ah, oh, they're roadies, you know, and I'm like, and that's the first time I heard the word, and it's like, roadies, and I'm like, so do you, you know, what's the deal, you know? He says, well, we travel with the band. I say, you travel with the band? He says, yeah, we're off to Melbourne, then we go to Adelaide and blah, 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 and then we come back and we do a different band, and I'm like, wow, you know? And it's, he's like, yeah. I said, so they're traveling, which I'm doing anyway, listening to live music, which I'm trying to do desperately. And so I look at him wide-eyed and <laughs> naive. So do you get paid? <laughs> 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 at which point he looks at me and goes, oh, Jesus. <laughs> you know, head, head slap, you know, like, oh, my God. And he's gone, yes, we get paid. So at that point, I didn't say it out loud, but at that point it was, this is what I'm going to do. You know, not knowing that girls didn't do it back then, you know. So that was the start of it, you know, and within a within a, a month I was actually doing it. So that was the start. And Swampy to, to, did become a mentor of mine and like a best mate and all the way until, until he passed, you know, about 10 years ago. So it was a lifelong friendship, good buddies. His kids today are still, you know, you know, close in the family circle. So, you know, that's how it is. You know that, you know, friendships don't yeah. go away. They no, go from generation to generation. <laughs> so so kind of ACDC was just this local band you worked for then? They were, well, just, they were like- just starting. Bon, yeah, Bon had just joined them. So there was three. There was Malcolm, Angus and Bon Scott. And they were just starting to record their first album and George Young and Harry Vander were there producing it and they were just writing and doing all that stuff. So when I got offered the job, the deal was, but you've got to live in the house with the band. And it's like, and I'm thinking, great, free accommodation. And they're thinking, great, we've got a 24-7 slave. (laughs) (laughs) But it was good. If you're going to be a slave for anyone, to be a slave for them because they're a great bunch of guys, you know what I mean? So, But it was an interesting time because it was when Phil came on board as the drummer, you know, he he got the gig and then, then Mark came on board, he got the gig. And then it just didn't stop. I mean, I was doing backline at the at the beginning, and but once we started doing like a bunch of shows and the band's taking off, they realised that we needed our own PA, you know. So they send me to pick it up one day, and I'm thinking that's good. Yeah, I'll go pick it up. I had no idea that that meant I was meant to operate it. You know, <laughs> it's like I, I go and pick it up. You know, vaguely listen to what they're saying when they're setting it up and stuff. You know, and looking because I'm curious. You know, so it's like, oh yeah throw it in the truck, get it back to the house, and they're like, don't unload it. We're going to go into rehearsal with it. Oh, and by the way, you're doing you're doing the front of house sound now. Oh. Hey, wait, what? <laughs> it was like, oh, my God. But, you know, I, we sort of talked about it, and I think, I think the logic behind it was I already knew what they wanted mm. and as far as levels and what they needed as far as Bond's voice and stuff. So I guess they just figured it was easier for me to do it then have to train someone from scratch, you know. So I, I guess that was the logic. I mean, we never really, you know, so, sat so, down and said, this is it. So that that's my, I want to know, you sat in an ACDC rehearsal when they were a local band. They were a, gra- a band, just this band. What did the music do to you when you first heard ACDC? I mean, you heard the inception of iconic rock before anyone else. Yeah, I mean, it was powerful when they were just forming chords, you know, like here, here, and let's try this here. You know, it was like there was always this just incredible energy in the room, you know, and, you know, and, and how they how the brothers work together. You know, I mean, there's a, a serious discipline with them. You know, it's it's Malcolm and Angus 
Bond takes off, does lyrics, comes back, presents some lyrics, they go over it a little bit, goes back, and then that's when then the bass and the drums are brought in, you know, and that's and it, it is segregated like that, you know, and that's how it is. So, you know, I mean, it was interesting to watch. It was really, really impressive to watch, actually, because, I mean, the two brothers were so young. I mean, they were, they were almost as young as I was, you know what I mean? I mean, Angus is only... Which, which for the record, you were only years, a little bit like... You were like 17 at the time, I think, when you met ACDC? I was 16 when I Six, started okay. with them, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you're sitting there listening to them write ACDC songs. I can't even fathom that. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. That, that's amazing. And to hear Bon Scott put the stuff together, that must have just been, like you said, electric. Like, do you ever yeah, clo- it, close your eyes and remember that? Oh, I remember when they wrote that song. Holy cow. Like, <laughs> Actually... <laughs> Actually, you know, that's that's kind of a little tricky, you know, because they'd, they'd work on bits and then they'd go to another bit and then they'd work on you know, bits of another song. So it wasn't just sit down and, and just all together work on one song until we get it and then play it through. It wasn't necessarily like that, you know. So there was a lot going on. They were writing a lot of songs and they were reworking songs that they'd played in other bands as well, like Salt Stripper and stuff like that. You know, since Bond came on, they had to change it up or he wanted to change it up and stuff. And, and it became a song that was... A, an ACDC song as opposed to what they played before, you know, with the other, they had a different singer and, you know. Wow. How did, so the first time that you, even though if you didn't know what you're doing, you ran sound for them as opposed to doing backline. Um, what, what was what was that like? Did 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 you feel connected in a different way than, than you had before or were, you know, I mean, what was that experience? Absolutely, yeah. Doing doing backline for them was like wrangling cats because everything had cables at the time. So you know, Angus's guitar was cabled, Mike's bon, you know Bond's mic was cabled. You know, stuff would get caught up in the drum kit, and it was like so. I'd spend a lot of time running on stage and and doing stuff, and you get heckled by the by the audience because they realise you're a girl, and it's like, oh, for fuck's sake. You know, so it's like, you know, so sorry, sorry. Did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. So, so you know, <laughs> so you know, to actually get to the front of house position where everyone's facing the opposite direction, they're all looking at the stage, and I'm hopefully behind the majority of them. You know what I mean? So that that to me was good. You know, and it was a lot of you know the I think the other reason that I was doing the job was you know you know the old signal you know different signals that people send you and you know the signal you know the body language you know before they send the signal that there's something that needs adjusting you know because mm-hmm. obviously doing monitors from front of house is not you know the ideal thing for a band like ACDC it's not the ideal thing for any band but a loud band like ACDC to try and know once they've started because you know once they start you know I mean that the, the famous quote from the guy at the sound company when we picked it up was you know, just just make sure they keep their amps turned down. <laughs> At <laughs> which luck. point I laughed, thinking it was hilarious, and then until I realised that I was the one dealing with it. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, it's like, and it's like, damn. <laughs> yeah, just, just can we, you know, you try, you know, guys, can we keep it down just a little bit? We're having trouble getting, lifting Bond's vocals. You know, we've got to get Bond's vocals over this. And they'd start, like, the first song. <laughs> And then it would just be thump across the tiles. And it's like, well, I got one song, okay. But, you know, you work it out. You know, you work it out and, you know, I've been, you know, we didn't have any budget or anything, so I couldn't just ask for a bigger PA and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's you're dealing with what you're given, you know what I mean? So they never complained. They never said it was horrible. The audience always loved it, you know. So, you know, it was just something that I thought 
if I'm, you know, we were doing up to 14 shows a week. So my, my thing wow. was I don't have time to learn. There's no one here to teach me because I just had one other person. Like there was me doing front of house sound. There was a backline guy and there was a guy that drove the bus. So that was the whole crew. So there was no one to teach me stuff. You know what I mean? So that was, that was when it was decided to make the change, you know. When was the so first time how- you – go ahead, go ahead, Sam. So, like you said, right, there's nobody to teach you. So how did that journey of learning start for you other than just try, like, were you just trying new things every show, trying to figure out what's working? Are you? Yeah, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd basically get them to turn up in the sound check. It's like, guys, don't fuck with me. Sorry, guys. No, you, no, no, you're, you're, just you're gonna, fine, you're fine. We oh, am I? Okay, sorry. Okay. And it was like, guys, don't, don't even pretend because it's not going to happen. We know it's not going to happen, so just turn it up now and let me deal with it and be able to walk from front of house back to the stage while they're doing a song, you know, while they're doing a song so I can get feel the balance and do all that sort of stuff, walk the room and that sort of thing. So, I mean, you know, that's that's how it was. I mean, I, I knew other people who were good sound engineers, you know, and they, they could give me verbal advice, but, you know, we all had different systems as well, you know what I mean? So it's not as though we all had the same system and it was like, ah, here's a trick. When this happens, try this, you know. It, it doesn't necessarily work across different systems, as you know, you know. So, you know, so, I mean, you know, and we would we would swap PAs, you know, like if, you know, we'd get our, our, our week's list of, of gigs, so to speak, and you'd say, you'd see which other bands were playing certain shows and it's like, well, let's use your PA at this show, we'll use our PA at this show. So, I mean, that was another thing, you know, it was good to be using other systems, but again, if you don't know anything about them and you're thrown in, it gets a little tricky, you know. So I'd get like a five-minute crash course and it's like, okay, cool, let's go. So, you know, I mean, I'm a fast learner, but, you know, miracles take a little longer, you know. <laughs> but, but, no one, but, but, you know, no one ever complained about the sound. I don't think I was a shitty sound person. I just thought that lighting would be a better way for me to go. Because it was bigger and heavier and uglier and sharp and nasty <laughs> and, and lots of electricity. So that was my logic. <laughs> Let's well, take the easy road. <laughs> that's a, the toughest way I've ever heard lighting explained. For for a, a sound person, I think you should explain lighting like that to every sound person. They'd be like, whoa, okay. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. yeah. The, when when a lighting person asks you to give them a hand, you really don't want to. No. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> it's well, but, it's funny right, well, that you say ahead, that ahead, to level sorry. the playing field, though, because like that's because when I when I first started, I ended up learning a lot of lighting because I was like, oh. all right, I've got to I've got to have another skill set. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, I, I I do some motivational speaking and some and some mentoring, and especially during COVID, you know, I'd say to people, don't just sit at home, learn something, learn something different that you don't know anything about, that's that that you can relate to with the field that you've chosen. You know what I mean? It's like you know, if you if you if you're doing lighting, it's like check out check out the video check out check out the screens check out this whatever department's next to you learn something about it use this time you know because you know when as we're coming back you know the people the more you know the more you're going to get hired you know so because you know i mean it's it's a unique situation we're kind of sort of starting from scratch in a way for a lot of people cuz 
There's like two years of kids that have graduated out of college. There's like 30% of us that haven't come back, you know. So, you know, it's a, it's a different if it's a different balance now, you know, than it used to be. It used to be you come in and you've got to, you come in, you'll get sort of mentored by someone and, you know, we'll kick you around on a tour for a while, see if you survive. And then if you do, we'll put you out on another one, you know. <laughs> now, you know, as crews get bigger and bigger, there's more and more new people coming in at the same time, you know. So, you know, it kind of, kind of makes, you know, the original, the OG's job a little harder, I think, because they're, they're wrangling more people. And trying to train them and, and do that as opposed to maybe there's one new person on a crew. You know, you could have four, you know. So, you know, it's, it's yeah, you know, do you, I think the best advice you can have in this industry is to try and level the playing field, especially if you're a female. You know, it's like what can we do that people are going to notice that we're valuable, we have a value, we carry a weight and we're filling a position and we're doing it well. You know that that to me is important. You know, one hundred percent. What what was the first time you encountered another female doing what you're doing? I I had to hire her. <laughs> it was Yay. it was yeah. It was on Elton John in '82. Um, now I'm not saying there weren't other women between when I started sure. and like '74, '75, and '82 because there were. They just weren't really touring. What they were doing is working in production warehouses or working in a, in a theatre, like, you know, that the bands had come through. So, you know, there was, there was female follow spot operators, you know. Occasionally you'd see a stagehand, you know. So, and, and you know, as, as tour management positions and production manager positions started to separate off from other positions, you know, people would bring their girlfriend on tour. It was like, oh, good, I could, she can do look after the office stuff. You know, so so that you know, it was starting. But um, and 1982, I was doing Elton John. A friend of mine came over from Australia, and I put him. I was with Tasco at the time. I put him out on Neil Young. It was it was Neil's first tour coming back. So and and he was a Neil Young fan. So we put him out on Neil Young, and that left Debbie Vincent. And he's gone. You know, Debbie does lighting. You know, and it's like, oh, okay, cool. So I looked at the, you know, we had maybe half a dozen. By this time I was running the lighting department for Tasco, And so we had maybe half a dozen tours going out. But I thought, you know, I don't want to throw her to the wolves because, you know, she's going to get a hard time just because, you know, it's either going to be like, oh, you know, Tana doesn't do it that way or it's going to be like, is she as tough as Tana? Can we, you know what I mean? And I didn't want to do that. So I thought, you know, I'll take her out on Elton with me, you know. So I did and she was brilliant, you know. She was great and and she went on and she had quite a good career and uh, she ended up teaching at like one of the first colleges in Australia on the West Coast. Um, She did that for a while. She's unfortunately no longer with us. But, but she was also the only other female I ever toured with, you know, mm. because that's how how rare we were, even in 82, you know. I think Simply Red had a female tour manager and and Brian Ferry had a female lighting designer, I think, at some point. But it was really that few and far between, you know. What, what, what pulled you into lighting? Was it maybe the creative side or what, what, what pulled you to, to stay there for a while? Um, yeah, well, you know what it was because lighting just took off. I mean, it was just this this meteor taking off across the sky. I mean, as soon as people decided figured out that 
lights were cool, <laughs> you know, that, that they actually, like, made the show look so much better. And if they put on a production with, like, some sort of, like, actual light show, then they could charge more. So it became hmm. a money thing. And then by charging more, we all of a sudden had a budget. So, you, um, you know, you're right at the ground zero of the evolution of lighting. You know, I mean, it was amazing. You know, we went from pump-up genie towers and, like, theatre rows of lights at the floor at the front, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. and, and follow spots if you were dead lucky, to, um, you know, to flying trusses, to people up the trusses, follow spots up the trusses, you know, like ground support went away completely, you know, and it was just, like, amazing. And then it was, like, how many how many lamps can we use? ACs, a- aircraft landing lights. Wow, let's use those. Those are really cool. How are we <laughs> going to get these rigs up? Well, there's a company in France that makes these motors that, that they use in factories. If we turn them upside down, we can use them for raising trusses and raising PAs even. Like, oh, hang on a minute, we can fly the PA as well. So it was innovative Holy and it was shit. exciting. Yeah, so it was really exciting to be there for that, you know, and like aluminum trussing, you know, watching watching the stress test on aluminum truss is just amazing. It's like, yes, and then it explodes. It's like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And pyro, you know, I mean, pyro was a free-for-all, you know. I mean, I see the stuff that pyro Pete does and it's just like I'm in awe. It's like, oh, it's like I'm such a fan of his Oh God, the secret's out now. <laughs> I haven't told Oops. <laughs> Hi Pete. I'm a fan. Yeah, it's true. But you know, like I got my hands I got my hands on Pyro once. They only let me do it once. <laughs> and, and what it was is we had a peeping tom at the house that I lived at when I was touring, like doing international tours in Australia. And my roommate would call me and she'd go, He's back, he's back. And it's like on the other side of the country. It's like, unless you're going to put him on the phone, what the hell can I do? I don't know what to do. Call the police, you know. So then when I finally, I said, I'll sort it out if he's still around when I get back, you know. So my solution to it was, well, I'm going to put a flash pod under every window around the house <laughs> and I'm going to daisy chain them together. <laughs> and, then, and then it doesn't matter where he is because when you hit the switch, boom. <laughs> He's blinded. That is and, awesome. Well, yeah, yeah. So it was fabulous. It was so did you cool. do it? <laughs> and did, did you, and yeah, did you... he did turn up. He turned up. I got to throw the switch, which was so cool. And and then of course he yelped like hell, picked himself up off the <laughs> like he he flew backwards. The whole house went foo-foo. You know, I swear to God, it lifted. It felt like it lifted off its, you know. So anyway, he yelped, screamed, got up, ran over and scaled like an eight-foot fence to get away from us. <laughs> That's <laughs> and, amazing. And this is like late at night. So, my God, you know, my, my roommate, the, the girl who, who I shared the house with, we're laughing and giggling and we're like having a shot, you know, to celebrate. Yay, <laughs> that got him, you know. All of a sudden there's this on the door and we're like, God, who's that? You know, it's like, what's who the hell's here at this time of the morning, you know? And so it's like we sort of sneak a look out and it's like, oh, shit, it's the cops. (laughs) 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 
<laughs> because it turns out we're the only house in like a four block radius that hasn't called in a bomb going off. <laughs> so, You're the one. So, so, so we're like, oh God, quick, what are we going to do? So we're hiding the booze and, and like sort of scruffing our hair up and trying to get sleepy face on, you know, like, oh, sleepy, you know, hello, what, what? <laughs> Open the door and we're pretending we're both sound asleep like, what, what, what's wrong? And there's this big cloud of smoke wafts out. <laughs> <laughs> and there's these two cops just look at us and go, what have you done? What the hell is going on here? And we're trying not to laugh. You know, we're like, what, what? He's got, don't, don't, you know, and he's like, no, don't, don't fuck about. What is going on here? What has happened? You know, and they're trying to get in the door and it's like, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. It was a peepee time. We tell him really quick the whole story and you guys would never come. We'd call you. And so we had to do something. And they're like, you blew up the neighborhood. And it's like, <laughs> well, well, we didn't know what else to do and you wouldn't help us, so it's your fault, you know. And they're like, oh, my God. So they come in and make sure we haven't got any more explosives, you know. <laughs> they're trying to decide whether or not they should arrest us or not, you know. And we're like, now we're pathetic, being pathetic and crying and going, no, no, don't lock us up. We had to do something, you know. And so they're like, they're like, you know what, you just don't ever do anything like that again. That's, you know, that's really dangerous. And just as they're leaving, they've gone, well, we'll never find the guy now. And I said, well, excuse me, officer. And he's like, what? I said, I think you might. You probably want to go to the nearest hospital. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where they found him. <laughs> So Holy anyway, to put, to, long story, the long story short, that was my brief encounter with Pyro and it was decided that I probably should not have a career in Pyro because <laughs> <laughs> I just had way too much fun. <laughs> Holy cow. So, yeah. well, Michael, wants, I, Michael wants to do Pyro in his next, in his next venture, so. Yeah. I'm with yeah, you, I, Michael. I'll come yeah, do it so with you. Yeah. <laughs> Every every day I go by Pyro World and ask them like one thing. I'm like kind of just I'm like harvesting knowledge a little bit at a time, oh. so they won't. They won't. And it's the same way that basically spies steal classified shit. They just do a little bit at a time. That's so right. That's, knows. that's what I'm doing. That's right. Uh, I, I I did come in undercover and do some Fourth uh, of July shows, sort of around the marina and Venice area and all that sort of stuff, you know, for a few years. But then I, I was just having way too much fun. And that, again, was, like, really old school. Like, it, it wasn't pre-programmed, like, multi-channel and stuff. You'd have to crawl along the rows and boom, boom, and then get out of the way really quick. So it's, you're just surrounded by the smell. It's like, I love that smell. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really, you know, we've got confetti launchers on this show, and, and it's just basically a big rectangular metal box that they blow a bunch of CO2 yeah. through. And whatever's in there will be launched out. The, I call them Ex the garbage tubas. Yeah, they're exactly. just big, these big horns. Um, exactly. so hot dogs. we had this, we Put got hot this, dogs we, in there. That's what we were saying. We got so the pyro guys were, we were having this whole thing. We were trying to figure out like what, what we could put in there that would be like, like you know, pennies and bees and such, just horrible stuff. Oh, and pennies, he said, you'll kill someone. One time there was a um, said a cubes. girl like security leaned over and a pack of cigarettes fell out of her pocket on this oh. one show he was doing, and it just launched a you know, oh. launched a pack of cigarettes a couple hundred feet into absolutely. the middle of the so, absolutely so now yeah. he checks them every day before the before the end of the show he makes sure that no one's used it as a garbage can or something make sure people yeah and yeah. see that happens too I, I did that with Philly, Philly of Fish McDonald's I stuck him in the sound amprex sorry guys because <laughs> keep them warm because I was pissed off I won't say what tour or what what company it was but they we'd had a really bad problem with catering for like the whole tour and we finally got to Germany and I knew the promoters would call and they'd give us finally we'd get a good meal, you know. And 
just as, and like we're working away like dogs, you know, because it was just a horrible schedule and stuff. And we see all these like trolleys going by with the big silver domes over them for like a really cool posh meal. And we know that's for us. And we're working away. We're going, oh, this is so cool. This is so cool. And then finally we get to break it. We go into the catering room and there's this mountain of McDonald's. And it's oh. like, the fuck, no. what happened? It's oh like, God. oh, we sent that, we sent whatever that was away. We weren't going to go through this again. So we made them go out and get McDonald's because at least we know what that is. And it's like, and, and it was like an American crew. And it's like, I'm going to kill you. You know, and it's <laughs> like, you know. And, and so, you know, I mean, I, I, I still don't eat fast food. You know what I mean? So it's like, I didn't eat anything, but there was this mountain of fillet of fish left. And it's like, what is that? You know, oh, it's fish. And it's like, huh. Okay, cool. No one's eating it. I'm going to take a couple, a few maybe. So I took a few <laughs> and stuck them in the back of Amprax. <laughs> <laughs> so overnight, because it was winter, it froze and you couldn't smell it. But when they'd heat up the Amprax, you'd smell the fish. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, and this was like, a, this was a mystery for about a week until they finally found them. That it was like, they didn't think it was funny. I thought it was hilarious, but it was like the last time, it was the last time they sent away a crew meal, put it that way. So it had the desired purpose. <laughs> the little things you That's do funny. to amuse yourself, you know. So I'm, I'm curious, when, when did you come to the realization that you wanted to, to write this book? Actually, you know, I got prompted by an outside force, so to speak. Some guy kept calling me and it's like, who the hell is this person? You know, he's leaving messages. So I'm not picking up because I don't know the number. And he's leaving messages and he's like, you know, um, this is my name. I'm here in Los Angeles and I really want to write a screenplay about your life. And it's like, the hell is wrong with this person? I don't know who this person is. What does he, what does he mean my life? It's like, I had no, you know, it's like, uh, and he kept calling. And so finally I picked up and, and was really rude. Like, who the fuck are you? And why do you keep calling me? This is ridiculous. <laughs> you know, it's like, just stop, you know? And he's like, no, no, you don't understand. You've been in like several other books at several books. And, you know, I find your story really fat. And I'm going, what do you mean I've been in several books? He said, well, different people's like memoirs and a couple of other books about the industry and stuff. And it's like, really, when did that happen? You know? So anyway, I was, but you know, I kind of met with him and he wanted the gossip, you know what I mean? He wanted the gossip on all the bands, you know, and that wasn't going to happen, you know, and it doesn't happen in loud, you know, it's like, that's not the point of the book, you know? Um, so, but he got me kind of curious. And then someone else called me from Australia who I guess had used me in one of their books and he's like, you know, I could write your book for you. And I said, what do you mean? What book? There is no book. You know? But it's like, I don't know what's happening here. So anyway, it, but it sparked something, to, you know. And so then I started thinking about it. And then I started thinking, you know, you know, sometimes you think about it and you go, did I really do the right thing? I mean, should I have done this? Should I have chosen this career? Like, have I wasted my life? You know, you have that, that whole moment of like, um, stuff. And it's like, you know, so I started thinking about it, but then I started writing, you know, so th they both inspired me to do it inadvertently. And then as I started writing, it just kept coming, you know, so it was kind of a roundabout way. I mean, I had no intention whatsoever. I mean, for Christ's sake, I left school at 15. I didn't even graduate high school. 
you know. So, which is funny because my book's now in the boarding school, the Church of England boarding school that I went to, <laughs> that, I, that I ran away from. It's in their library. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I'm, I'm, which is hilarious because they I'm, obviously didn't have my school record, so they wouldn't have put the book in the library. <laughs> They did I'm, mention I'm, they couldn't find they couldn't find my records, but they did find the photo that's in the book. So <laughs> that's funny. You, you know, you, you start off the book talking about your childhood, which you know uh, wasn't easy, um, and uh, you know, and there's other parts of your journey which, I, in full disclosure, I haven't a chance to read the whole book yet, but I've, I've skimmed as much as I can. And look, the, the life we live uh, being on the road is not easy. And um, I, I glance at the end and it, it sounds like, you know, you, you've had troubles with with your son even. Uh, and it's, you know, maybe uh, a perpetuation of, 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 of things to family. So what was it like for you to mentally process these harder times and publicly talk about them and have to express them? Because first you, you had to, you had to remember them. Then you had to write about them or constantly review that. So that, um, what, what was that process like for you? It's, you know, it's definitely a soul-searching moment. You know, you, you come to a, a realisation and, and, again, it's like, did I do the right thing here? Did I do the right thing there? Could I have done something differently? Should I have done something differently? But, you know, I, I'm the sort of person that, you know, you hopefully do the best you can and, you know, whatever the outcome is, you need to live with it and learn from it, you know, and and hopefully be strong enough to move forward, you know. So that's, you know, I mean, you can wallow in it. And, I, and I've wallowed at times. I mean, I really have, you know. I mean, we all do, I think, when, when critical things happen in our lives, you know. But um, I think the true measure of a person is how you can actually pick yourself up, rise above it and, and come out of it with an outlook that, you want to do better and you want to make it better for other people. Mm. You know, I think that's that's the learning curve. And if you can learn that, it doesn't stop it from hurting, but it, it gives you a reason to want to do stuff, you know. So I think that's really important, you know, betterment of yourself and being able to help others, you know, learn what from your mistakes. Yeah, and I, I want to get there because you, you do some mentorship and, and you've worked with, you know, school children and stuff. But... What did you learn about yourself through this journey of writing the book? At the end, there'll be roaches and me. <laughs> That's it. There'll be roaches and me. It's like, because I guess I'm unkillable at this point. Shouldn't say that out loud because you know what happens. But anyway, it's, you know, I guess, you know, I, I think from having like, a you know, a shitty childhood, it's sort of, lowered my expectations of what I could have and, and, and what good was and all that sort of stuff. So I think, you know, no matter what gets thrown, you just try to rise above it. You know what I mean? I think that's, that's the best advice you can, you can do. And that's, that's hopefully, you know, what's happening. You know, I don't, I don't know how else to answer that. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's fine. So can you talk about, um, you know, at the end you talk about, um, you know, again, still, you know, and I don't know where the, the current state of this is, but you know, you're wrestling with, you know, maybe issues you, you do or don't have with with your with your son, um, and you're looking back at what you've done and what the future of the industry is, and and knowing that you need to give back and and, and work with schools locally and, uh, and and mentorship and all those things. So, what ha- what has been the manifestation of that, and what what are you currently doing to, through all that? Yeah, um, you know the. the- 
the manifestation of that is that, you know, I have started doing um, a little bit of inspirational speaking. I'm, I want to do more of that. Um, evidently, there's a demand for it. People keep hearing, you know, like interviews and on the radio and all sorts of stuff. And like there was just a call today from Singapore, from BBC World News. I did an interview last week. And um, this person's like, we want you to come and speak at all our colleges throughout Southeast Asia, you know, I mean, things like that and inspire women, you know. And so for, for me to be in a position at this stage of my life to be able to be, you know, hopefully held as a bit of a mo role model to people, I mean, that's the surprising thing that came from the book. I thought, <laughs> I thought parents would hate it. <laughs> you know, and I've actually been, I, I, you know, would say, oh, my God, I'm not letting my child do that. It's like they're never going to get to do that, you know. And it's amazing the amount of parents that have reached out to me through my website and said, you know what, it's really inspirational. Our daughter wants to do this for a profession and we've been sort of on the fence about it. But, you know, now, you know, we think it's a good idea, you know, we're going to support her on this and stuff. So, I mean, just just outreaches and contacts like that make it all worthwhile you know and I've actually met a couple of the girls you know that that have come you know through on tour and they they call me up it's like hi my mum <laughs> reached out to you can we have a coffee and it's like hilarious it's like sure <laughs> you know so you get to sit down and talk with them and you know spend an hour or two with them and and you know and they they obviously have questions you know and so you just try to answer them as best you can and, and be supportive for them and, and, you know, wish them well along the way, you know. So, I mean, if that's, that's my biggest gift out of all of this, you know, is being able to reach out with people and hopefully make a difference somewhere, you know. We're kind of doing that on a smaller scale than BBC Worldwide. You are. No, <laughs> Chris almost choked. <laughs> Sorry. Nice one, Carl. No, no, no. But, uh, well, I mean, I didn't, I didn't mean it like that. I, no, no, I think, no, no. I meant see, it like this that. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, see, this is, this is an industry show, so this is, this is close to my heart. You know what I mean? It's oh, yeah. like, I mean, I, I, I can do radio interviews and all that sort of stuff, and it's great because it's, it's promotion for the book. But this, to me, is where my heart's at. So, you know, I'm, it, I've been really looking forward to this and I'm happy to be here, you know. No, and, it, and it's the passion that keeps us together because both Chris and I are daughters, dads, and uh, we're, we go through it. And supporting women in, in this business is is a lot different from when you started, but it's still going forward and it's it's amazing. Like, I've been taking my daughter to shows since she was a, a little nugget, you know, and... Um, I've dedicated my, my time to her. And when you said, oh, learn things over COVID, I, I learned how to be a soccer coach because I figured at some nice. point being an audio guy um, in this business, you know, maybe maybe I'll be a coach once I, you know, because mm -hmm. you got to draw the line between coach and dad. But here's the thing also with right. this podcast, I'm learning that I'm taking a lot of things with me to personal and professional life. And that's one of the things with the soccer coaching, how to set up your plan and go about your day and how to talk to people and especially children. And we work with a lot of children. So to be able to get people to work for you and to work with you and to learn something from it, that's what soccer coaching is all about is, is yeah. doing it. So now when I go out with stagehands and people that aren't quite familiar with what we're doing, I kind of look at other people funny if, you know, uh, take for instance, we had a guitar tech that was setting up guitar cabinets but he was having the the hands do it 
and the hands didn't understand that the knobs pointed downstage because they've never seen a guitar cabinet ever before in their right, entire life. Right. Like you said, all the staffs are new. And for yeah. him to get upset with them because they didn't know that, I was like, not the oh, way to go. here's how you do it. Yeah. You know, you got you to gotta think of this thing as you're teaching it to a four-year-old. You got to keep it awesome. You know, you got to keep yeah. the pa- because they're there <laughs> for a passion. And that's the difference between, you know, like you said, the other radio shows and this thing is, is this is a passion project. And we can teach this better than most. And I, Ab- I, think, I think it's awesome. Absolutely. And, you know, when I first became a crew chief, you know, there was there was a little resistance in certain areas to that. You know, no one wanted to be told what to do by a woman, you know. So it, I learned very quickly that it's all in the wording and the attitude, you know, and if you're not prepared to show someone how to do it and do it yourself, then you're not a good leader. You know, you've got to show them. If you want them to do it right, you've got to show them. But it's not like I'm... Um, I, I'm telling you to do it this way. This is how I want it's done. It's like, I tell you what, why don't we try it this way? You know, mm-hmm. and that's such a different vibe. You know, the minute you say we, why don't we, and you're there hands on with them, you've got them. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, perfect. You know, but if you just send someone, like you say, go and set that up, do that. When you're done, get back to me. I mean, you've, you've isolated that person. So you've lost them. You know what I mean? They're probably going to go and maybe try to do it and then just keep going and <laughs> try and find someone else to work with. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so you know, and, and you know, that I, I learned that, you know, first time crew chiefing in Europe, you know, when you don't necessarily speak all the languages, you know what I mean? Or you've got a crew that pretends they don't speak English because that way they mm. only have to do half as much work. You know what mm. I mean? So the easy way Sam, to do Sam, it is take to, notes. Sam, take notes. <laughs> nope, I already <laughs> had it. Sam, <laughs> Sam's right, about to go on a multiple month tour through Europe. So uh, yeah. there you go. <laughs> Just finished one. We'll do another one. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's you know they they love it if you get hands on with them. You know, just hands on. You're there. You need something. Find me find me don't keep going if you don't understand you know and you can say do you understand and they'll nod blankly and you know they don't so you've got to try and make it work you know what i mean it's, you just don't go you just don't go too far away and you keep one eye on them while you're doing something else you know what i mean so and and you know if it fails it's your fault it's not their fault you know they haven't been hired by the band to get this shit in the air you know what i mean they're just here to see a show they want to see a free show and hopefully get paid you know so Absolutely. are there things that you've wrote, you wrote a book that you look back that you thought you might have just taken in stride and not appreciated the moment when you're with it? Because when you said Elton John, <laughs> I looked up 1982 Elton John, and that was his 16th album. That man has yeah. put out a bazillion albums. Yeah. Holy cow. Do you ever think, oh, I was just taking this stuff in stride because I was on like this plane and yeah. I didn't... Uh- a lot, a lot of it, a lot of it. Like, you know, I mean, there's a lot of those moments. It started with ACDC. That was a moment for them, you know. And then, you know, when I when I was in England, I started with a band called Status Quo, who's not big over here but is huge through Massive. England and Europe still still to this day. And, you know, I, and I spent four years with them in, in the and – the, and those years are the just the – the years that everybody talks about, you know what I mean? Those were the quo years, you know what I mean? So, and then like with Elton, I did his first comeback show. We're at Windsor Castle. We did a show for the Queen, you know, no one had ever, 
no one had ever gone into Windsor Castle to put on a concert performance before. You know what Incredible. I mean? Incredible. A rock concert performance and like Ozzy Osbourne, his first solo tour, you know, with Blizzard of Oz. So, you know, it just kept sort of happening and I was kind of oblivious to most of it. You know, it was just, you know, because you work so hard, you know, you, you're working hard, you're just trying to get through it really and then and then sort of sit back and enjoy what you can of it. But, like, I mean, the Who show, 80,000 people at Wem- Wembley Stadium, it was the first show they did after their drummer Keith Moon died. So, I mean, that was a huge moment for them, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's tons of those, you know, and it's and, and I, I wasn't really aware of any of it as it was happening, but after the fact, you know, and usually because someone says like, oh, my God, I can't believe that, and it's like, oh, yeah, I guess so, yeah. You know, but it's, you know, I get, I get stuck in the work zone, you know, I I get totally stuck in the work zone. And that I think is my defense mechanism from, from trying to like moving target, keep moving, work hard, keep your head down, pick your fights and they'll keep you. You know what I mean? (laughs) That was my original plan. You know what I mean? Moving target was harder. You know, would would I ever take time off? I would have my next tour booked before I finished the last tour I mean, I had three, a three-week break between tours and what do I do? I throw in an Iggy Pop tour. God forbid I have a day off, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> you know. I, I'm I have curious. so many fanboy questions. Holy cow, I got so many fanboy <laughs> questions. <laughs> we, we, could, we, yeah, we can get there. I, one cool question. So be, uh, because of the way you came into this industry and where your focus was initially, right, you're, you're, you were – service-based in that like you're working for acdc these artists or whatever you're there to uh give them what they want and need when did you realize um the power both from an audio standpoint and then eventually lighting that you had on creating an experience for people and how much that was attached to the experience that people had with this artist did, did you remember a moment when like you realize what that that was yeah, it was really when I started working for a production company because then I had a say in budget and stuff like that. I really, for some reason, with um, the bands that I worked for directly, that was all sort of, you know, it would come to you, this is what we've got, just make something happen. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. But with the production company, if you're there from the original meetings, as you know, you know, it's like, you know, can we do this? What about that? You know, I mean, we did this Johnny Halliday show. I don't know if you guys know who Johnny Halliday is. He's the French, he was a French megastar, you know, and, and I was in on the meetings for his, he did a residency at the Zenith in Paris. We actually opened the venue and did a six month residency, which was seven shows a week for six months sold out. You know, I mean, it was, and it was the biggest lighting rig that's ever been built there was like three and a half thousand lamps, you know, I mean, yeah. And it was right at the time where Very Lights was just starting to take off where people could afford to have it apart from Genesis. That's like 10 lights short of a microwave that you made, basically. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, well, there, were, there were a few 10Ks and stuff in there as well, Holy so I think we shit. had the microwave. So, and, and we had 32 Very Lights as well, I think, or was it 64? I can't remember. It's in the book. But, um, but you know, th- things, like, things like that was – you come in on the on, on the decision side of it and how do we make this work and how can we do this and, and that's what I love. 
I love the challenge and I love to be like there from the beginning, the inception of it and bringing that inception to life and making it work and spending a lot of somebody else's money. That's what I like, you know, it's like, and then, and then, and then when you see it up for the first time and, and all lit, it's just like, oh my God. I mean, I know your black boxes are sexy, but I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. You're not wrong. All right. Before, before Cog gets to his fanboy questions, I got one more in the, in this vein. <laughs> What's the most hair standing moment you've had as an experience while doing a show? The most hair standing moment, like as in horrific, or no, as oh, in. Well, <laughs> I mean, I get. I, yes. <laughs> yes. I, we can go there. I'm. I'm sorry. I, in context of like chills, goosebumps, like the like the you know that that yeah that that vibe. Exciting. Of, yeah, like um, just. You know, um, that's a, that's kind of a tough one. You know, I think. Elton John at Madison Square Garden when Yoko and Sean came on and he played Empty Garden because he never played that live, you know, but he, because it was written about John and he would rarely play it live. I think he's only to this day played it live maybe half a dozen times but um, in his whole career, you know. So, I mean, that was, that was an incredible moment, you know. That, that was something well worth acknowledging, you know, and... You know, again, you know, when we finally got all of Johnny Halliday's stuff up and, and we hot tested it, you know, we bought everything up to about a third and it was just, oh, my God, look what we just created. <laughs> this thing's a monster, you know. I mean, that 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 was amazing, you know. Um, on, on the other side of it, the, the hair raising, oh, my God, what the hell just happened <laughs> was when... <laughs> was when the, the three-phase was plugged up incorrectly and um, I'm standing on the stage and, and everyone's deciding that all the problems have finally been solved. They flew, they'd flown me in to sort of try and get this tour on track and, um, and we were still at rehearsal stage. It's like, oh, Jesus, you know. So, and they're all standing there and they're all really proud of themselves and I'm, I'm saying to them, I say, guys, you know, we've actually got a bit of a ways to go here. We're, we're not out of the woods yet. And just as I say that, and, and one of them straddling the three-face that's running across the back of the stage. And I, as I'm talking to him, I can see between his legs and I can see it starting to vibrate. <laughs> and it's like, what the fuck? What is happening? <laughs> and then it's like, and it's coming straight at us. It's like a train coming at us. And I'm just like... Oh, my God. So they thought everything was cool. So I left them standing there and I jumped out of the way <laughs> just, as, just as the three-phase went boom. <laughs> and they're all like ah, screaming at what happened and, my God, and I said, as I was saying, we're not quite out of the woods yet, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right, Kyle, yeah. hit, your, hit, your, uh, hit your fanboy questions here. Okay. I, I'll just do one since – if you could go to sleep tonight after the show, what show would you dream about again, doing again? Well, that's a question. Um, you know, maybe, maybe that Who show at Wembley. Yes. That was, that was pretty <laughs> cool because, you know, the good thing was it was the first show they'd done since, since Keith Moon had died. It was a make or break show for them. They like, are the fans going to love us still now? Keith's not here. Have we been off the road so long that they're going to forget us? 
But the other thing was ACDC was on the bill as well, so I got oh. to catch up with them, you know. So it was like a double win for me. And plus, um, I, I actually talk about it at the very beginning of the book. It's like it was the first show where I actually walked on the stage at the load-in and took a minute, like I was waiting for the rigger, mm-hmm. and um, and I was just looking out and there was still mist on the on the ground, you know, on the on the, the course, you know, the field. And it was just starting to clear and I just took a second because you never get to take a second. Well, I never got to take a second, you know. And I'm looking out there and I'm going, I'm going, wow, you know, these guys, they're going to be cool. The show's going to be fabulous. It's sold out. They've got nothing to worry about. They're, they're, they're great. They're huge. They're successful. They're winners, you know. And then just for one second there I went, hang on a second. Does that mean if I'm working for them, does that mean does that mean I'm a winner too you know like I I gave myself that little thought for a second you know and it was like it was really the first time that was in 79 that was in 79 and that was the first time I really felt that I was 100% accepted Mm. you know so it had been years it took a long a lot of years you know I mean I was accepted but and and still, you know, there's always people who are going to have a dig, you know what I mean, just, you know, whatever, pick your battles. But I gave myself that moment and that thought. So it was like a really sort of, it was a strong moment for me, yeah. And the, show, and the show kicked ass too. So. That's amazing. All right. So what is the moment that you reflect on the most, that you just think back to throughout your career? <laughs> actually the moment I think about the most is what would have happened if I hadn't done it oh. you know that's that's actually what I think about a lot is like where on earth would I have ended up if I had not done this if I hadn't take this huge leap of faith and just and and just been pitbull with it and stayed there and stayed and stayed you know so I mean because you know I really don't think I had anything else going for me you know so you know I, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't give up, you know. So, you know, that's, think, that's what I think. It's like I think how thankful I am and, and of all the countries I've seen, all the people I've met and just how fabulous it is. And, and you know, when people ask me a favourite show and stuff, it's kind of, it's kind of a, a, a conflicting question to me because it depends who you're with, you know. To me, a crew is really important, you know, really important. And I would always, I mean, I would choose a tour by the crew over who the actual performing artist was every time, every time, you know, and because those relationships, they're for life, you know, and and that's why I joined this industry. I was looking for a family, you know, because I didn't have one. You know, I'd run away from what was supposed to be my family and that really wasn't. So, you know, I was looking, that's what I was looking for, you know, and, and I mm-hmm. found it here. With you, dodgy lot. <laughs> I'll take it. Think, motley crew. I think there's something that that resonates with many of us in this industry, and in that like that like, well, where, where would we where would we be if not here? And it's like there's there's such a, like I, I <laughs> no, but like I mean that's um, I I don't I don't want to think of any other place where I'd be if if not for here. So, um, yeah. all right. The other side to that too, though, if I could just say really quickly, yeah. the other side to that too, though, is something that a lot of us don't get. Whereas you know, I, I had this conversation so many times during COVID, especially in the beginning, 
um, of, you know, well, especially once they realised it, everyone realised it wasn't going away. You know what I mean? And it's like, you know, that so many times people were going online or they were talking in groups and saying, I can't do anything else. This is the only job I know. And it's like, hang on a minute, wait, stop and think about what you just said. You know, you've been controlling crews up to hundreds of people who you only meet for a day. They do absolutely what you want them to. They get a job done. You get your job done. You can, you know, can you drive? Yes. Can you lift over 50 pounds? Yes. You know, can you direct other people? Yes. You know, what can't you do? Can you drive a forklift? Yes. Can you do that? You know, do you know about engineering? Do you know about electricity? You can do a million things, you know, and that's, you know, I think that is the crux once we get over that hurdle, especially older, you know, older crew people like um, me, me, <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like us, Kyle, <laughs> yes. um, because, you know, I think that's a major contributing factor to why our suicide rate's so high, you know, and things like that. It's like people feel that they're worthless if they're not working for a band. And that's just so far from the truth. You know, I mean, they're amazingly talented people, you know, and that's one of the reasons with the book is, you know, there became a stigma with the term roadie, you know. I mean, I'm proud to be a roadie, you know. I mean, it, it, it evokes this, you know, scruffy, dirty, wearing black people, big gorilla-type guys throwing boxes around, and that's so far from the truth. It's ridiculous because those those original people are now running these huge multimillion-dollar companies, and still changing how the industry works and still controlling and still running it and still tri- teaching other people, you know. So, you know, that's that was another thing that, you know, I wanted to get across to, like, the general public who buys the book, that, you know, you, you think you know how shows work now. You want to go up and tell the front of house sound guy that you need more kick drum or whatever. But you know what? Read the book and figure out what we really go through and <laughs> what it takes for this to happen. You know, and then if you're brave enough or silly enough, you can come back and try and get us to turn up the kick drum, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know we're up against the proverbial clock. Let's do this. Let's do one more juicy. But I I have a question. Yeah, go, go, go. Yeah. So the uh, handsome one speaking. Ah, I like you. I like you. So he's attractive. We are <laughs> we are both newly published authors, so that's pretty cool. Nice. Um, something that something that I've been you have a book, Michael. People a lot about. Weird. I do. Um, it's getting really good reports. I hear very good. Of, you know what? A lot of people are like, "Oh man, you know, I started a book and then I never finished." It's amazing the number of people who started a book and then didn't finish it, and they're all like, "What tips do you have?" to finish it. I'm like, just keep writing. You know what I mean? Like, just don't stop. But, um, your book is really long. It's like 300 and something. <laughs> and I, when I look at it, I was like, Oh shit, it's so much, it's so it, much book. It's like, a, there a point. I know. Just I, like, when, when I got, shit? I had the PDF copy real, real quick. I had the PDF copy yeah. that, from your premier publisher who had sent me like a, 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 a pre copy or whatever. And that's when I skimmed initially. And today I got to hold the actual real copy. And I'm like, and after have, having held Michael's copy, I'm like, Whoa, this is this is this is a book. Yeah, like, that's fucking. <laughs> when you were writing it, did you, was there a point where you're like, I can't fucking keep going. I'm gonna die in the desert of thirst no. or like what happened? <laughs> die from starvation right next to a fully loaded fridge. Yeah. No, um, <laughs> no, I um, I actually wrote an extra ten thousand words, thinking that that would make it easier for them in the editing process, because I wrote it all on my own, but I did have help with the editing. 
And editors are brutal, you know what I mean, because they don't know your story, they don't know your industry, they don't know a lot of things, so a lot of stuff that they want to get rid of. So I thought I was writing decoy stories so it would make it easier <laughs> with the editing. <laughs> but, it, you know, it's it, 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 it was tough, you know. I mean, I set everything up because I never kept a diary, I never kept a journal, I kept, you know, I, I gave all of my swag, all my swag away on Venice Beach about 20 years ago where I had a crisis moment where I th- thought, you know, I'm never going to work in this fucking industry again, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so all the homeless people were wandering around with Pink Floyd tour jackets and Elton John tour <laughs> jackets and, and I gave them all away. And it was right when eBay was happening. And I was like, why didn't you put it on eBay and sell it? I said, because that then, you know, because then I wouldn't be making a point, damn it. <laughs> so, so, you know, but, um, you know, to, so to, to go back to, to the writing process, the writing process was like a validation for me. So what I did is I, I split it up into decades and, and I deliberately only wrote up until the end of the millennium, so to speak, you know what I mean? Because that's where all the major changes had happened by then. So I didn't want to bore people with everything else. Plus I have a second book, but anyway. But, um, <laughs> oops, we just woke Kyle up. <laughs> <laughs> but so what I did is I made one wall was the 70s, one wall was the 80s and one wall was the 90s. And then I split it into 10. So then it was 71, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, you know, everything. And then I started going through and researching. And then it triggers, you know what I mean? It's like it's different to your book because your book's a technical book, correct, mostly, is it? Yeah. So yes. I, I don't know if there's as, as emotional a trigger for, for your book <laughs> as there is was for mine, but um, it's, it, he loves his ohms. <laughs> but um you know I, I you'd start writing one thing and 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 then you know how it is when you tour you don't just do one tour and then you have time off and then you do another tour and then I would get bounced around I would get pulled off a tour and sent out to another tour and then put back on the other tour and then you know because that that was part of the being in charge of the lighting department and that's what you do you're the head person they want to see you out there they want you to sort it out fix it make sure it's cool, and then get back to the other one. So God forbid to get a day off. So I had to find a way to write it where there was continuity for a reader who doesn't understand that. You know what I mean? Mm. That was the hard thing. That's, that that's, was the that's hard thing. And that's so, interesting. Yeah. Well, that, and so that's, that's such a challenge. Like I know what I'm trying to say, but I have the context of being me and being in my head. Do you know what I mean? Like to try to get it to somebody who has no context of what you're trying to say is really tough. That's the thing. You've got to get it out of your head. So the the best way to do it is pretend your eyes are closed and you're telling a story to someone that they can't see. So you're just you're telling a story, you're explaining the story. So that way they get to see everything that you're doing and that you're talking about because if you and and you've got to put yourself into it because I mean the hardest thing to do is put yourself into a story because you get sort of I don't know if it's embarrassed or if you get nervous or whatever it is but it's like you tend to look at it from an outside outsider looking in and then you're explaining it to someone else who's a complete outsider so there's that distance between you you know, you're creating a distance, and you, yeah, it's a you, void, you have you're you have to create you have to create context sometimes that in your head when you remember something you don't have to think about the context, right? But I imagine you yeah. probably had to look, like, look look at a story and go, 
oh, you know, this probably isn't going to make sense if I just say this because I know that this is true or this is happening, right? Yeah. And, but you there's, have to actually put there's a, you there's to, a, you put there's a saying, yeah, sorry, there's a saying which is show, don't tell. So you have to show people everything that you're saying. So you've got to pretend that, you know, you can't see. If you're watching a television, you, you get the gist of everything. That's why a movie only lasts for an hour and a book lasts for a few days, depending how fast a reader you are. You know, because with a television, you can I'm see bits slow. of flashing and it, and, it, and it triggers stuff. But if you can't see and you're just listening, then you've got to mm-hmm. show them that story so they can create it in their head. So you're showing, you're showing a moving pictures in their head. You're creating that. So Michael's gone. He's like, hell, that's not the answer I was no. looking for. <laughs> <laughs> he just, he just to, has dodgy. right out the crappy hotel internet, internet here. Yeah. Did, was, there, was there another um, – did you uh, – from a writing perspective and a storytelling perspective, was there uh, any other example that you were gleaning on or advice you had had when you were doing that or was this all just – you figured this out as you were trying to pour it out? You know, I'm notorious for doing stuff the hard way, so I figured it out on my own on the way. I (laughs) I actually started, after I had the book deal, I started doing writing courses at UCLA and um, I'm doing like a, um, a, a, I'm doing a course, a certificate program and I've just, um, I've only got the cornerstone to do still. Um, But um, it it made it so much easier, you know. I seriously, Mm. and people said to me, take a writing class, take a writing class. And I'm like, no, oh, I don't want to sit in the class. That's that's not going to be any fun. You know what I mean? That's going to like, I left school at 15 for God's sake. Why am I going back to school? <laughs> you know, here. but, um, you know, UCLA Extension is an amazing, amazing program and, and they have creative writing programs for all sorts of different things, different genres and all sorts. I mean, they have all sorts of programs, but creative writing is one of them. But I would seriously recommend that to anybody who's thinking of doing a book and, and, you know, take a couple of different classes. You know, they last for about three months. You can do them remotely. You can do them online. You know, it's once a week, you know. So if you can make it work, make it work, you know. And yeah, um, that's, sure. I would definitely suggest that because with the second book that I'm about halfway through, my writing's just completely evolved, completely evolved, you know, so... So before we do any like closing questions that we may or may not uh, do that we typically do, um, let's let's go for one more juicy story. I know you've said it before, but let's let's, let's do it here for people who may haven't experienced it. Can you tell the the uh, the Iggy Iggy Pop story of, of, of the first time you met David Bowie uh, and you 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 know uh, you know you know yeah. what I'm talking about? So talking about doing things the hard way, yeah. Well, well, yeah, like you you got called backstage because he wasn't coming to stage. Absolutely, and, and, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it, it had been a pretty rough tour. It was a short tour, but it was a rough tour. No budget, you know. It was just a nightmare, really. But, you know, you've got to love Iggy. I mean, I, I just think he's amazing. You know, it's like and, – and the band he had at the time was Fred Sonic Smith, Scotty Thurston from, from Tom Petty. I mean, just an amazing band, you know. So um, it was well worth doing and I was glad I did it. But Iggy took a bit of a shine to me. So I'd hang with Iggy quite a bit and, and sort of, you know, wrangle him a little bit from time to time. And um, so when the show started, my position was front of house and I'm on the intercom, you know, and I think I was talking to the follow spot operators and we were playing London. It was like the last three shows for the tour sold out. And, you know, it was a music machine. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that old venue, but 
It would take about 1,500. I think they probably had 2,500 in there that night and of just leather-clad English punks. You know, it was like, oh, my God, not quite sweaty enough. So, you know, the, the, we're talking away on the intercom and then all of a sudden, you know, the house, house goes to dark, at which point, yes, the band's meant to walk on stage, right? Well, that didn't happen, but through the intercom is, Tani, you need to get backstage now. Eggy needs you in the dressing room. It's like, wait, what? No, 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 no. That's not what happens. No, the house lights are out, guys. We need to start the show. No, no, no. He's locked himself in the dressing room. He needs to talk to you. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake. You know, it's like, oh, God. And so, I mean, the hard, I mean, it's not just let's walk backstage. It's like you're fighting through all these punks trying to get to the stage. The stage is really high. I've got like my hand up. Someone grabs them and drags me up onto the stage, you know go running upstairs, like across the stage, up the stairs, down the hallway, and the hallway's full of people because everyone's now figured out that he's what he, whatever he's doing, he's not on stage, you know. So it's like, oh, God. So I'm banging on the door, you know, bang, da, 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 da. James Osterberg, let me in. What's going on? We need to start the show. The house lights are out. We've got to do this. And he's just like opens the door a little bit, looks at me, he goes, oh, no. First he goes, who is it? And I'm like, what do you fucking mean? Who is it? It's me. It's who it is. It's like how many female Australians do you have working for you? <laughs> for Christ's sake. You know, it's like, oh, my God. So he opens the door, grins, pulls me, grabs me by the scruff of the neck, drags me in, shuts the door, locks it. That got them. It's like them. I am one of them. You need to get on the stage. Stop this, you know. And he's holding it. He's got, he, he grabs this mirror and it's got three lines on it. And he goes, I want to introduce you to someone. I want to introduce you to someone. And I'm like, no, we need to get onto the stage. We're going to have a riot, for Christ's sake. Yeah, just, 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 just. So he does a line, passes it to me, and then he walks over. There's some guy behind me I can just kind of see in the corner of my eye, and he's got like a coat and a, a like a hat on or something, you know, and I'm not really – I'm pissed with him already. I haven't even seen him, and I'm pissed with him because I'm figuring it's his fault. He's encouraging this. You know what I mean? So Iggy gives me the mirror and the note. It's got two lines on it. And I'm like, fuck this guy. I did both of them. I thought, fuck him if he's going to cause this yeah. problem. It's like, <laughs> screw him. And just just as I turn around and, and he's standing right here, like right, boom, in my space, so to speak, you know, and Iggy's like, hey, Tata, it's David, David Bowie, you know, David, David, me Tata. And I'm like, oh, fuck, I've just done his line. So we shove the mirror at him, give him the node, grab Iggy and run out of the dressing room. It's like, oh, no, you know. And the reason why Iggy wanted us to meet was because Bowie originally was meant to go out on that tour, but they'd had a falling out and he hadn't turned up all tour. And Iggy was like a cat in a hot tin roof. He was like, oh, he's going to be here tonight. No, he's not here. Bummer. You know what I mean? So when he was finally here, he was so excited that it was like, we're going to have a riot, you know. <laughs> but it gets worse because I get back down onto the stage and I've still got to get out to the front of house and I've still got my leather jacket on and I'm like, I can't go through this with this leather jacket on. So I take it off, fold it up and shove it under the monitor desk and dive into the pit, you know what I mean? And, and Iggy would always ask me, can I wear your leather jacket on stage? You know when he comes out and he has a leather jacket on and he takes it off and then he sort of slaps it, slaps it, slaps it on the stage and then throws it off to the wing? You know, never lost a leather jacket. Well, I'd always said to him, no, no, hard no. You are not using my leather jacket ever, ever. No one wears my leather jacket apart from me, no. And so he decides this night... I'm in the pit fighting my way back to the, the front of house position. 
he's somehow clocked me, stashed my jacket. I guess he's got it on. Huh. I don't realize my leather jacket's on him. And I'm trying to shut the spot operators up. Okay, everyone, turn your mics off. We're starting here. It's like the audience is going nuts. They're like pushing each other. They're yelling. They're screaming. And this one guy won't turn his mic off. He's like, oh, man, look at that. Oh, man. Oh, that's well hard. And it's like, shut up. What's, oh, what a shame, man. He just lost his jacket in the audience. And just as I hear that, I turn around to face the, the, the stage because I was looking up at the operators. And just as I do, I see the sleeve of my jacket go sucking into the audience pit. And I'm like, that's my jacket. That's not his jacket. <laughs> and I had, to do, I had to do the whole show knowing he's lost my leather jacket. That was so hard. It was so hard. <laughs> not good. Not good. I got very angry. You very did, angry. You did David Bowie's did. line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I got offered a Bowie two, two years later. It's like, what about? Do you think you want to go out? Oh no, I don't. I think I'm good, actually. No. <laughs> I already did that I thought, tour. I, I, I had this. I had this feeling that I'd turn up the first day and he'd be like, "Get her out of here." <laughs> So it's like, no, no, actually, I'm good. I'm going to go do this tour over here. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my god. So goodness. anyway. That's amazing. Yeah. So, All right. Yeah. But, my- you know, you can't stay mad at him. I mean, especially Iggy. I mean, he's such a sweetheart. It's like it, he's just a brat, you know, so you can't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, why don't you hit your, uh, hit your question? Yeah, sure. All right, so Tana, we're all going to come visit you in your hometown. Where are you going to take us to eat? What's your favorite spot to go to? Where am I going to take you to eat? I, you know, I'm I'm kind of like a crustaceans kind of girl. I like I like seafood, but I like sort of like scallops and and lobster and and stuff like that. So I I've just moved back to the beach at Venice. So I don't know. I'd have to take you to one of the seafood places. I think. Yeah. I'm in. You could come. You could come crash at my new pad. That's okay. <laughs> the floor is open to you, <laughs> all of you. I'm, it's not. It doesn't have that. a guest house or anything. It's not that exotic. It's a one bedroom place. But I've just moved, and I'm so happy to be back at the beach. Won't be the first <laughs> awesome. time I crash on a floor. Yeah, the couch <laughs> is good. The couch is really good. It's a big couch. It's good. <laughs> all right, Sam. All right, I have two. Um, how has the advice that you've given <clears throat> changed over the years? Mm. Um, it, it used to be, what are you nuts? Run. <laughs> so it's kind of evolved from there to like, what the hell are you thinking? No, 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 no. You must be crazy. Or you need a really high pain factor level. But um, to, yeah, I mean, just encouraging people, but making it realistic. I think that's the important thing is, is realistic expectations, you know, and that's that's what I bite down into now, you know, especially if it's someone who's just done, you know, a four-year college course or something, you know, I say to them that, you know, this is great because you've learned some theory, but now you need to real, realise that there's a real-world situations that change every day and you need to know how to deal with that, you know. It's, um, you know, I throw questions at them, you know, especially if it's like, well, you know, I've done four years, I should be able to just come in and do this and blah, blah, blah. and it's like, no, 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 no. I say, okay, well, here's a question. All right, so you're late. You're late for your load-in. You're actually five hours late for your load-in. You get there and all of a sudden the stage is half the size it's supposed to be. What do you unload off your truck and why? 
and their little brains start exploding. <laughs> so like they're like, bah, 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 bah. and it's like that's why you need us. That's why you need to learn in real life because that's what you will learn the answers to those questions. You know, that's powerful. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Awesome. And then for the usual, what do you wish you knew when you first started? What do I wish I knew? I wish I knew I was worth more. Mm. Yeah. I wish I wish I knew my self worth. That would have that would have made my journey a little easier, I think. <laughs> but um, you know, that's a hard thing for a lot of people. That's a hard thing for a lot of people. So you know, that's something else that I try to drill down with people in is like, you know what, if if you don't have self-worth, then no one else is going to have it for you. You know, I mean, I, I learned a lesson a while ago when I had my own company doing logistics and, and freight and all that. Um, and the guy said to me, he wanted to buy my company and he wanted me to run it still. And, and he said, you know, he said, what would be your ideal salary? He said, if you could be paid anything, how much, you know, would you want to get paid if we move forward with this, you know? And I thought about it and and I was, everything was covered. The rent was covered, the car was covered, everything. I had zero expenses. So I threw a number at him and he looked at me and he went, huh. <laughs> I thought, what does that mean? Does that mean like I said too high or, you know, oh, my God, did I just blow this? What have I done? And he looked at me and he said, is that all you think you're worth? And I said, what? <laughs> you know, I mean, I was shocked because you know, it was a high number. And, and and I think he did, I mean, I know he did it to make a point. And he said, you know, if that's all you think you're worth, he said, that's all anyone else is ever going to think you're worth. He said, hmm. so next time someone asks you that question, he said, think about it before you answer it, you know. And it's, it's some of the best advice I've ever been given. Huge. That's huge. Man, I just want to sit there for a minute. <laughs> I know. I was like, that's, I think that's about the best answer I've gotten to that. Oh, my goodness. I was, I was, uh, was, was going to ask you, when did you realize that? And you answered it without me having to ask you, like, when did you realize? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Kyle, do you have anything else before uh, I go somewhat near the usual? No, no but I, I just want to let you know that one time that you thought you won in Wembley, you won a million times before that. And by releasing this book, we get to see a lot of your wins that you didn't, that you were just in stride and you didn't even know what happened. So you're, you're continuing to win by spreading those wins. I think it's oh, awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Carl. That's really nice. Thank you. So my, my typical question, um, which, I, you know, could possibly be answered by the cover of your book, but I, I think it's probably deeper than that. So, I, you know, uh, so my, 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 my typical question is, if you could define your legacy or how you want to be known, how would you define that? Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on a limb to say that your legacy isn't that you were the first or one of the first female roadies. How would you want to be known and define your past? Well, you know, hopefully someone who was of use to other people, you know, someone who could help other people, someone who could, you know, teach other people. And, you know, I, I, I don't see myself as a role model at all. I mean, I, I, I personally laugh to myself when, some, when someone says you're a great role model. It's like, what are you nuts? Have you read the book? <laughs> what are you crazy? But, you know, if you can inspire someone, you know, like I had a phone call today and it was that, you know, from England and, and a person who I knew in the industry. And he said, you know, he said, this person just called me and she said how inspired she was by hearing you speak. 
And it was like, that makes it worthwhile to me. If you can inspire someone and help someone without, without even touching them, you know what I mean, without even knowing it, I mean, that's a whole other element, you know. I mean, that's a whole other level. And, and you know, I just, I, that I feel is kind of my mission. You know, people say, do you, would you, you know, you're going to go back out on the road, you know. It's like, well, do I need to go back out on the road? I don't think I need to go back out on the road at this stage, you know. I mean, would I go? If there was something that was a real challenge and I hadn't done before, just because I'm curious, you know what I mean? I'm a curious person and, and I like a challenge. But, you know, do I want to do that as a career at, at, anymore? It would have to be something really special, you know what I mean? Because I'm enjoying speaking. I'm enjoying motivating people, you know, and, and hopefully helping people, you know, that's, um, which is so far from where I began. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's so far from, from me as a young kid, you know what I mean? Or a young adult, you know, whatever, you know, I was partially feral and just, um, let's go. <laughs> well, I, I think the, 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 the part that I think you should think about when, you know, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm a role model is that I, I, I believe that like through this book and through the way we talk tonight and stuff is that, you know, the introspective thinking that you've done, that it's, it's the, it's the fact that, um, uh, it's the culmination of how you fought to where you got and the way you thought about things is where people find that center, right? Like it's, you know, sh- sure. Should the advice isn't necessarily, do I run off with the circus or the tour or the whatever? Right. And it's like, you know, um, you, you found a passion, you found a way to continue your drive. Like th- those are the things that, that people are latching onto there. Um, and, uh, you know, and and look, are the rock and roll stories fun and juicy? You know, yes, of course, right. But I mean, that's that's not the crux of yeah. of it was what, never meant to be, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's like to me, you know, the the different bands and stuff mm-hmm. are like a tapestry in the background. You know what I mean? And the stories going on in front of that. You know. Awesome. Well, oh my goodness. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you thank so you. much. Yes, we greatly appreciate your presence. I'm so glad that we were able to postpone this a day and actually have all of us together to oh, hang with it's, you. It's, it's, uh, so am I. It's wonderful. Yes. Thank you all for taking the time. I'm so excited. Awesome. Yeah, it's really great. Thank you. It's been a real honor. <laughs>